Good morning, everyone. Please sit comfortably. This may be the last of my Jordan Peterson-inspired Dharma talks, but you'll never say never. But uh, there's an interesting uh, uh, statement here, um, which is uh, from one of uh, Jordan Peterson's uh, chapters, um, which is a kind of Jewish koan. And uh, in the Torah, which is a a Jewish text, there um, there is a commentary. And in the commentary it says, Imagine a being who is omniscient, omnipresent, and and omnipotent. What does such a being lack? And the answer, from the Jewish point of view, limitations. Uh And we can see some resonance of that Jewish koan in our own Dharma practice. But as uh, Jordan Peterson points out to bring this point alive, is the story of the um, the comic character Superman, and apparently um, Superman was very very popular at first. But as the story went along, is that um, Superman became more omnipotent and more perfect, you know, and nothing could touch him. Even nuclear blasts couldn't destroy Superman. And then, interestingly, what happened as Superman became more indestructible and more perfect. All the readers stopped reading him. Be, it, it was no longer a commercial success. You know, he, people couldn't relate to it anymore, and it really went really went downhill. And so they had a new writer took over. You know, took over the franchise and and revitalised <coughs> Superman. And that's when Superman became vulnerable to kryptonite. Right? And and uh, so he had his own weaknesses and limitations and vulnerabilities. And then the readership started coming back, you know, and, and um, Superman became uh, very, very popular again. Very interesting, isn't it? Um, and so this Dharma talk is about um, seeing our limitations and understanding that within the context of Zen practice. As a sideline to that, um, recently I have... Um, a Jewish friend who I was having a conversation with around a particular issue. And um, this person is not only Jewish culturally, but Jewish religiously, very, very deeply Jewish and practicing uh, Jew. And uh, we were talking about <coughs> a recent, or not recent now, uh, about a, an article which came out earlier this year or last year, uh, which was called um, Buddhists Behaving Badly, and it was in the Sydney Morning Herald. And it was a very good article, and it was about um, the, um, the life of Sogya Rinpoche, who I met some years ago, and is a very well-known Tibetan Buddhist. And it was an expose about how he had um, abused his students um, physically, like hitting them, bashing them, and sexual abuse, and you know, and basically a Buddhist behaving badly. The other example of Buddhists behaving badly is currently in uh, Myanmar too, you know, where their Buddhists are actually persecuting Muslims. Terrible. Right? 
So what's going on here? Um, obviously, uh, there are limitations occurring here. But what you find, if you, you look at the, the psychology of practice and you look at the psychology of what happens in koans, you'll often find the monk asking the question or who's coming forward with a presentation, the person coming forward with the presentation is either coming from this place that they're missing something, right? And if only they practice hard enough or whatever, they'll find it. There's this sense of not being good enough, missing something, which is the driver in practice. And then you have the teacher responding in, in some way to that that challenges that perspective. And on the other hand, you have koans where monks are coming forward feeling like thinking they're enlightened and that they've gained something, right? And you see the teacher cut them down, right? So there's this kind of mistake in human behaviour and human understanding is that we're, we're lacking something and, we're, and we've got to gain something or that we gain something and we're perfect and we're Superman-like, right? And, and there's no limitations there. But really, when we look into the nature of practice, you see this from your own experience if you do this long enough. There is nothing to lose and there's nothing to gain. Hmm? Losing and gaining are just words, they're just language, they're just concepts that we get caught up in. Um, but there is nothing to lose and there is nothing to gain. So what do you do then if there's nothing to lose and nothing to gain? Um, an interesting kind of koan-like statement too, which I've come up with, is um, can we transcend our biology? And as research goes on into the brain and neuroscience and the body, it's pretty clear that our brain is sort of developed and our bodies are developed so that we have an ingrained, we have an innate uh, a drive for aggression and we have an innate sexual drive. And it also seems like human beings as social animals are wired up to be both social and antisocial. And we're social in the sense that we can bond together in families and tribes or identify with a group and we cooperate well within that group to get support each other. Um, but through history, human beings have also been also very antisocial in that we have tribes who are not us. You know, we're not, we don't care about them. We only care about my tribe or my family. And so we have this dual kind of nature is that we can cooperate very, very well. And we have this desire to protect our own turf and our own position. So all of that's kind of part of who we are. Can we transcend it? Interesting question. Mm -hmm. um, in some way, um, one of the most common metaphors for the Dharma and for practice is the lotus, you know, and as we all know, the lotus is this beautiful, white, pure flower, you know, which, which 
rises above the water, but it's got its roots in the mud. Mm -hmm. um, we have a body, we're a mammal, you know, a human being is a mammal. So we're rooted in the mud, and yet there's this pure lotus can emerge out of that. Now what does that actually looking towards? Does it mean that we reach some state of perfection? Is that what the pure lotus is? There's some kind of perfect place that we go to? One of, one of the ways that people misunderstand practice is, and the way people talk about it in various different traditions is so enlightenment is a, is a destination and you, you get to the destination after all of this practice. Where in, in reality, what we call the awakened life is really a journey and you never get to a destination. It's just a journey. You just take one step in front of the other and another step in front of another and you never arrive anywhere because there's nowhere to arrive to. Mm -hmm. So this idea that, oh, so-and-so is an enlightened person, what's that? They've reached a destination, have they? Have they become Superman? Mm -hmm. The perfect Buddha. I think that what we're, we're looking at, you know, when we look at that, that beautiful metaphor of the lotus, it's not so much that we can transcend our biology uh, and it's more that we, to use Ezra Bader's title of his book, we're at home in the muddy water. Mm -hmm. And the thing that transcends or the thing that shifts through practice and insight, it's not that we transcend our biology, but what is very peculiar to human beings is that we have this great gift of language. Right? And it's even in, our, in Christianity, in the beginning was the word. Mm -hmm. And human beings are being able to use words, concept, to manipulate our, our experience, our environment in incredible ways. We put a person on the moon. Right? We have the internet, you know. It's amazing what we've done with concepts. But we're also entangled in them. And, um, and the purity, if there is a purity that's actually cultivated through practice, it is, it's the purity of being able to see through concepts. We still have them, we still use them, we still have words, we still think, and yet we're not caught up in, in the entanglement of it, right? We're dividing the world into gain and loss and good and bad and better and worse, etc., etc. That, that's, that's the awakening of the Buddha, to see through that conceptual projection onto the world that splits things up. And it's because as soon as we split it all up, we're in the world of comparison. And when we're in the world of comparison, you know, we're in the world of delusion. We're out of touch with ourselves. Now, if you look at some Zen koans which touch on this same point of this Jewish koan, there's two that actually, they're side by side in the, in the gateless, gate, gateless barrier. And uh, the first is um, about um, a mythical Buddha called Daitsu Chiso. And so the monk comes to his teacher and, and, and um, brings up this story of um, Daito Chiso who practiced the ten kalpas. A kalpa is a very long time. He practiced the ten kalpas 
how come he never became a Buddha? And the teacher replies, well, your point is self-explanatory. And then the monk asks again, he practiced all those years, all of those years, and he never became enlightened, how come? And the teacher said, it's because he was a non-attained Buddha. Mm -hmm. And that's a koan, you can stay at that intellectual level, but what you're challenged to do when you work on that koan, bring, bring forward your own understanding of that. It's, it's a great koan, actually. It's a profound koan if we can really embody it. And like all koans, they're simple. But the challenge is to, to draw out and, and bring home what your actual experience is of being in the world. Mm -hmm. Something that's always been there, and it's been there in Buddhist training, Zen training, and it's also something that's addressed in modern psychotherapy, is how <clears throat> people have um, an ideal self and we all want to attain the ideal self and as we have this ideal that we're aiming towards and we keep comparing it to where we are and who we are and what we are we, we, we it causes suffering and dissatisfaction mm -hmm. and the idea is not to become this ideal self which you will never become anyway but it's rather to be this self as it is right now. Mm -hmm. And I think it was Maizumi Roshi, who was Joko's uh, teacher, he said something along the lines in one of his books, um, the way you are right now is far better than what you think your level will be. Mm -hmm. It's a good statement. And there is another, the next koan next to it is one of my favourite koans, which is um, Seize, alone and destitute. So he's kind of like, it's kind of like similar to the, the previous koan. He's a monk, a very senior Zen monk who's been practising very sincerely for years and years and he's quite well regarded, you know, by his peers. And he comes to his teacher and he says, my name is Seize and I'm alone and destitute. How can you help me? By alone and destitute, he means I've been practicing all of these years and I just can't taste any fruit of the practice. I'm in this lonely kind of desolate place. I'm in a, in a desert. I'm kind of like, I'm a bit depressed. Uh -huh. I'm flat. Um, and he's humble. How can you help me? You know, is there anything? And his teacher says to him, Venerable Seize. And Seize answers without hesitation, Yes. He says, You have just drunk three cups of the finest wine in China, and still you say that your lips have not been moistened. Uh -huh. And again, as a koan, you need to, to see into this for yourself. Mm -hmm. When we practice Zazen on a day like this, and when we do session, and when we just do it in, in our everyday lives, <clears throat> it's an opportunity to just be yourself. That's, that's actually, the, that's actually the, the nature of Zazen. It's the act of Zazen, and, and it's the process of Zazen, 
it's an opportunity just to be yourself and to allow that just being yourself to arise to the surface. And if you just sit like this over and over again, breath after breath, day after day, session after session, um, it gradually or suddenly emerges that just this right now, just as I am right now, is okay. There's nowhere to go. There's nothing to gain, nothing to lose. And if you go back to those lovely words, the opening words of Haku and Zenji's Song of Zazen, all beings by nature are Buddha, as ice by nature is water. Apart from water there is no ice. Apart from beings, no Buddha. How sad that people ignore the near and search for truth afar, like someone in the midst of water, crying out in thirst, like a child of a wealthy home, wandering amongst the poor. Mm -hmm. Beautiful words. They really go right to the heart of it. At the end of that, Sutra too. This very place is the lotus land. This very body, the Buddha. This imperfect body right, that doesn't meet all the perfect standards of beauty, right? The person with the big nose, the woman with the flat breast, the da 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 da, this and this, you know? Whoever you are right now, this very body is the Buddha. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of where Buddhism can go off the track a bit too, um, there is a book, I think it's in our library, um, by Rick Hansen called Buddha's Brain. And I've met Rick Hansen um, a couple of times. He's a really lovely man, a really genuine person. So it's not a this is not a criticism of him as a person, but his book is about how you can change your brain and how the brain changes through neuroplasticity and so on and how when you meditate this happens and that happens and you, you, you grow different connections, etc. through your brain. Well, I'm sure that actually happens from a neuroscience point of view, but it puts people, it gives people a misunderstanding of the Dharma it's like, oh, if I practice, then my brain will change, you know, and then I'll have a better brain, then I'll be happier and more effective. But if this very body is the Buddha, then this very brain, as it is right now, is Buddha's brain. Mm -hmm. It's not the brain that will be developed by creating more interconnections between neurons and then you'll become Buddha. This very brain, as it is, is Buddha's brain. A point which Rick totally doesn't get in his book. And it appeals to people. It's a best-selling book because people like to think they can do something that will progress them towards a goal. But that's where Zen practice and, and Dharma practice is, is quite different to anything else you will do. Nearly everything we, else we do in life <coughs> is trying to attain a goal of being better in some kind of way. Every project that we do. This is a 
project of just being who you are, as you are. So, to come full circle back to limitations, you know, whatever are the limitations in our, in our life, you know, we, we didn't get to do a PhD, you know, we can't play the piano, we're not very athletic, mm-hmm. we're not this, we're not that. Mm-hmm. Um, they're all the limitations in our life. And what might happen? if we embrace those limitations. 